Chapter 5 of The Northern Spy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Conover. Wyndham, Maine. The Northern Spy by J. Thomas Warren. Chapter 5 The Lieutenant Makes a Discovery, and So Does the Captain. "'Hold, sir! Would you kill him?' exclaimed an old man as he rushed from the door of the mansion, followed by a half-dozen servants. With lights which drew a fitful glare over the prostrate form of Captain Hoffman, or George St. Leger, as we shall hereafter call the young officer. "'Don't you see he is helpless?' "'Of course he are,' replied Lieutenant Gosham. And a confounded tough time we have at getting in the feller into such a desirable condition. He fitteth like a young lion's whelp. Who is he, and why do a dozen men assail one? Continued the old gentleman in an indignant tone. Them questions I'll answer one to a time, Judge Simons, if he have no objections, said the lieutenant. In the first place, there ain't a dozen of us. And if there were, it took the whole of us to have finished him. And in regard to who we are, I have to say he are a spy. A spy? exclaimed the judge with surprise. Of course, a Yankee spy. And these available documents concealed about his person that we are after. At this juncture, two other rebels who had been slightly wounded came up, and the lieutenant continued. Since he are dead, all we have to do is search him and get a hold of them papers. Come, boys, don't let's be wasting any more time. Saying this, the lieutenant was proceeding to examine the person of the young officer. Better see if he is really dead first, suggested the judge. It seems hard to kill and search a man thus. Ah, you don't have the run of such things judged like as we fellers does. What's in the business? Here, stone dead and only a miserable Yankee at that. Come, boys, we'll search him. Speaking thus, the lieutenant thrust his hands first into one pocket of the prostrate man and then into another, but without making any discoveries. Ugh! he said with a dissatisfied air. Them hain't the spots to search, said one of the rebels. Where, then? In his breast, or boots, or some such out-of-the-way place. That's where he'd put em if he were a cunning fellow. And I expect he were. Ho, ho, cried the lieutenant as he proceeded to set upon the advice of his man, and tore open the vest of the captain. Ye are a known feller, Bill. Here they are for certain in his inside pocket. The lieutenant's eyes glistened with joy and satisfaction as they drew from an inner pocket a small package, contained in a buff-colored envelope. The package was securely sealed with four large wax seals, upon each of which was stamped the word Hardy in small capital letters. The lieutenant held the package up to the light. Darn it, what does this mean? Here's old Hardy's name on these here seals. Don't see the use of that exactly. Let's see to the side. And the worthy lieutenant turned the package over. 
If his wonder was aroused at the impress of Hardy's name upon the seals, his eyes were nearly bursting with astonishment as he gazed upon the face of the envelope. His face wore a sadly bewildered look as he stammered through the writing thereon. It ran thus. To General Beauregard, C.S.A. Charleston. And on one corner, in a smaller hand, was written, Carried by Captain Hoffman of my staff. Pass him without delay. Hardy. What on earth does that mean? blurted out the captain as he fairly trembled with fright. Mean, sir, exclaimed the old judge in tones of indignation as he snatched the package from the lieutenant's hands with rapidity. Mean, sir, it means that you miserable, cowardly fool have beset with your brutal squad a bearer of dispatches from General Hardy to Beauregard and have brutally murdered a loyal Confederate officer in the honorable discharge of his duty. That is what it means. Uh-oh, cried the lieutenant, wringing his hands in despair. It has been an awful mistake. I thought he were a Yankee spy. A Yankee spy? What single thing about the man should induce you to suppose such an absurd thing? But... Talk he had with old Max back to the tavern. A talk, fool. I shall report this terrible crime, and you will be shot for it. Who knows but this delay may cause a total derangement of important plans against the enemy. You fool. This night's work may possibly lose us Savannah. Be gone. Quick, sir. Get out of my sight before I set my servants upon you and the judge stamped fiercely upon the ground. The terrified lieutenant, panic-stricken at what had occurred, and fearful of the consequences, hastily withdrew, and rode off with the rest of his squad at a lightning gallop. Poor fellow, said the judge sadly as he stooped over the prostrate form of the captain. He dies young, but in a good cause. A faint groan from the lips of the captain caused a flutter of hope that life was not entirely extinct. So the servants lifted George up tenderly and bore him within the house, and laid him upon a hastily prepared bed. The usual appliances resorted to in such cases were adopted, and in short time consciousness slowly returned to George St. Leger, who looked wonderingly around him. He beheld at his side, and holding his hand and chafing it, a venerable gray-haired man with a genial face and a warm, hospitable manner that favorably impressed him. At the foot of the bed stood a well-preserved lady of some fifty years of age, and at the other side were a couple of servants. When St. Leger opened his eyes and found himself lying in a comfortable bed and thus surrounded, his first movement was one of surprise. Where am I? Among friends, how do you feel? asked the judge kindly. Rather confused, sir. That villain gave me a stunning blow with his saber, knocked me senseless. You do not show any serious wounds that we can discover, continued the judge. Nothing, I am confident. The wound which you have bandaged in the arm is slight. This blow in the crown only stunned me, and I shall be well in a day or two at the farthest. We all hope so, sir, although we feared much worse. But my papers, said St. Leger, sitting up and thrusting his hand into his breast pocket. 
Those fiends did not get them, did they? Rest easy, sir. I have the package. Will you please let me have it, continued the captain, for I promised the general that it should only leave me with my life. Until I place it in the proper hands, I should feel easier with it in my pocket. The judge handed him the package. Thanks, thanks. You have conferred a great kindness. You need rest, apparently, more than anything else just now. We will withdraw and give you the opportunity to gain it. If you wish anything, ring this bell on the chair. I congratulate you on your marvelous escape. The captain was left alone. A dimly burning lamp, turned down low, shed a soft, mellow light about the small, neat, and well-furnished apartment. A door from the chamber opened into an adjoining sitting-room. This door was ajar, and directly opposite, against the wall of the chamber, hung a large, old-fashioned mirror. The captain's eyes were fastened upon this glass, which reflected a portion of the contents of the sitting-room. From the revelations of this glass, the captain knew that a marble-top stand stood in the center of the sitting-room. Moreover, he knew that upon said stand was burning a bright lamp, and that there sat in a rocking-chair, reading, a young lady, who had a very pretty face, with a well-defined, clearly-cut features, a high open forehead, jet-black eyes, and an exquisitely formed mouth. If the glass reflected truly, then he knew she must be in the neighborhood of eighteen, and was, as usual in the ardent climate of the South, even then a well-developed woman. St. Leger had traveled, and had seen many handsome females, and knew how to appreciate a good-looking girl, but he had never before seen a face that made such an impression upon him. Why it was, he could not tell. It was not mere beauty of features, for handsomer women he had many times seen. But there was some undefinable magnetism in that sweet, pensive face that indicated mischief to the heart of a man, who should be thrown such into the society of its owner. The captain was really not much hurt, and suffered but little pain from the blow upon his head, and was quite comfortable except very much exhausted and troubled with a confused feeling in his head. So he lay upon the bed, half awake, half asleep, dreaming and fancying and musing. He endeavored to recall this Judge Simons, but he could not. No such man that he could remember lived in the neighborhood when he was a boy, and the house itself seemed unfamiliar to him. This young lady must be the judge's daughter. There was nothing improbable in such a supposition. Indeed, it must be so. The position in which the captain had been lying grew irksome, and so he moved a little and coughed. The fair reader lowered her book and listened. The captain coughed again and cleared his throat. The lady laid down her book, and with the airy lightness of a fawn glided into the room. She approached the couch and leaned over. The captain had closed his eyes when he heard her approaching, and now slowly opened them. "'Can I do anything for you, sir?' asked the young lady in a low, sweet voice. That sounded in the captain's ears like the caroling of the birds in the forest. "'A glass of water, if you please.' 
The waters were then easy reach, and the captain's wants were readily supplied. Thank you, he said, and then continued. It is so lonesome lying here, and I cannot sleep. Will it be asking too much of you to sit by me for a few moments? Certainly not, sir, said the lady. Only you must not exert yourself too much in talking. Oh, I must talk. I'd as lief die as be compelled to keep my tongue still, replied the captain. This is so kind of you all to care for a wounded soldier. A soldier's life is hard enough and self-sacrificing enough, I'm sure, to merit more than what we are now doing. Your own bitter experience tells you this. That I have been right roughly used, said George, I will not deny. If that villainous lieutenant had got the chance, he would have run me through. But I think I did well in getting off no worse, with half a score of lusty cavalrymen hacking and cutting at me. My long training in sword exercise stood me in good stead. Did I understand the judge to say all right that you are a bearer of dispatches from Hardy to Beauregard? Exactly. I was on my way toward Charleston when these thick-headed, overzealous rebels pitched into me. Rebels? laughed the young girl. Then you call yourself and all the rest of us rebels, eh? Pretty good for you. Why, upon my word, you are as bad as a Yankee. Oh, I don't hate the Yankees so dreadfully, returned George, with an attempt to smile. I have seen too much of them. They are, many of them, first-rate fellows. You can judge for yourself shortly. What mean you? Oh, they'll be along here pretty soon. You don't mean it. Can they capture Savannah? Yes. And Charleston? Yes. But Hardy and Bragg and Beauregard? Sherman and his Yankees will whip us all to pieces, I am sure of it. He has a hundred thousand veterans. We oppose him with, say, forty thousand. They are flush with success. We demoralized by defeat. The result is certain. In a month, Savannah will have fallen, and you will see the boys in blue, marching by your very doors on their way north. You speak discouragingly. Only the truth. Do these Yankees commit such dreadful atrocities as we often hear of? No, they are men, the officers, gentlemen. Then they won't burn our mansions? Don't know. They head us, South Carolinians. Then you are a South Carolinian? Yes. From where? Beaufort County. Why, that is this county. Yes. In your name, if I may ask? Is Captain Hoffman? Yes. But I don't know any Hoffmans in the neighborhood. I've spent the last ten years in England. Ah, that accounts for it. The captain was bewitched with his companion. He felt a strange feeling about the hurt, and felt himself wonderfully drawn toward her. Could it be love that had sprang up at first sight? This is the mansion of Judge Simons, I believe. Yes. Has he resided here long? asked George. About four years. He moved from Mississippi. You are his daughter, I presume, ventured George. No. And the girl smiled quizzically. You are mistaken, Captain. My name is not Simons, but I am a niece. Please tell me what it is, said George coaxingly. I want to know what to call you when we next meet. You expect to meet me again, then? 
As sure as I live, I will, kind soul. I like you already, ventured the captain enthusiastically. You talk too much. It will injure you. You should be quiet, replied the girl, blushing. I will tell you my name, and then good-bye to the morning, for we can then talk more if you wish it. But on the morrow I must depart. No, you will not. You are not strong enough. The judge expects my father, who is a colonel in Hampton's cavalry, early in the morning. He will himself forward your dispatches to General Beauregard. Your father? Colonel Beauregard? exclaimed the captain in a bewildered tone. And your name? Tell me, dearest. There, there, I knew you had talked too much. You are feverish already, said the girl with a bewitching smile. I will send my aunt to you after a while. The name, the name, asked George. My name is Alice Montague. And the door closed behind her. End chapter 5